Hey everyone, welcome to this special episode of Under Control. My name is Paul, and on today's show we have Phil Zimmerman, creator of the Pretty Good Privacy Encryption Programme, a well-known technology for data communication which was born in the early 90s. Phil is also co-founder of Silent Circle, which provides multi-platform secure communication services in the enterprise space. In 2014, he was also introduced to the Cybersecurity Hall of Fame. Also with us today is Treasurer CEO Ishvan Lam. We will get their thoughts on the EU's plan to put forward a proposal on targeted lawful access, a push to dilute encryption technologies by suggesting backdoor access. We will also discuss the effects and consequences of social networks' influence over society and whether it is possible to reverse the troubling trend of social division and misinformation. Good morning, Phil. Good morning. Good morning. Great to have you on the show. And we have Ishvan Lam, our CEO as well. Good morning, Ishvan. Good morning. Good morning. And today's topic, what we're going to talk about is the war on encryption. So the European Union um, is starting to consider whether uh, encryption should be something that should be under the spotlight and uh, whether there should be some backdoors involved in this as well. So just to get us off uh, started, I want to read a, a short article, a snippet from this, uh, this article in the New Statesman. Um, which was published on the 21st of September. Um, and it is the title is the EU is set to declare war on encryption. And I would like to understand, of course, what your feelings and views are about that um, and see where we go from there. Okay, so the note reads, the application of encryption and technology has become readily accessible, often free of charge, as industry is opting to include encryption features by default in their products. Criminals can make use of ready available off-the-shelf solutions conceived for legitimate purposes. This makes the work of law enforcement and the judiciary more challenging as they seek to obtain lawful access to evidence. Now, um, of course, we've had a conversation earlier about the, uh, before we started the show about encryption, why we think that's a good or bad thing. So I think, first of all, Phil, what's your feelings on this? Because you've got some history related to this going through the battle for encryption. Um, so over to you. Let me let me kick this off by asking you what your feelings are about this latest article. Uh, well, yes, um, I I spent a good part of the 1990s um, fighting this battle. Uh, we 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 tend to call the 1990s the crypto wars decade. Um, that at that time we were fighting for the ability to export strong encryption software outside the U.S. But on on the European side, um, there was also domestic controls. The French had domestic controls. Uh, they didn't really have export controls. The British had uh, a bit of both. Um, and, uh, and other European countries were kind of following the example of uh, France, Britain, and the, and the U.S. The U.S. mainly had export controls. Um, and, and so it took the entire decade... Um, to get them to to back off from these policies, uh, the French were the first to uh, to um, uh, de deregulate uh, in strong encryption. Um, they wanted to to have the economic success that they saw in the U.S. Um, they had they were depending at that time on an old ancient technology uh, Minitel, and they. You know they wanted to have the economic benefits of the internet, so they recognized that strong encryption would have to be inevitably uh, a part of that. So they they ended their domestic controls in the late nineties. Uh, the U.S. Uh, ended their um, export controls in two thousand, uh, and the British um, had backed off from their uh, controls largely by that time. Um, since that time, we've had 20 years of, of um, entrenchment of this technology. We now have strong encryption everywhere. Every web browser has strong encryption. All of your uh, e-commerce and your online banking and and lots of things uh, uh, is is dependent on strong encryption. And we also have, uh, you know, from a cybersecurity perspective, for the rest of cybersecurity. You know the bad guys are winning. The attackers are winning. They're, you know, they're 
They're breaking into our networks. Foreign intelligence agencies are breaking into our networks, organized crime. Uh, they're breaking into our next work networks, uh, exfiltrating um, sensitive information, and then um, um, holding it for ransom or threatening to disclose it. Um, and and it's it's an asymmetric advantage uh, for the attackers. Um, and one of the few things that w still works um, against those attacks is encryption. And so to to ask us to um, disarm ourselves with one of the few things that that is actually still effective in defending ourselves uh, is 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 terribly ill-advised in in this kind of hostile environment mm -hmm. yeah and well i think we'll go a little bit deeper into that just shortly i want us to get ishvan's opinion about this as well um about this latest article that's come out so as an org as a company and organization um that provides end-to-end -end encryption services what's your feeling about this so what I think is, uh, uh, as Phil said, uh, this is this is uh, encryption is is a great tool to protect yourself uh, from from hacking uh, from from uh, leaking information because uh, there is a, a, a control, you know, who can and how can uh, that person uh, access that, and if you, if we are limiting uh ourself uh, or limiting the provider is limiting itself uh, you know getting some access uh to uh, to the information that gives uh, uh, um that gives uh, uh less liability basically when when information is managed for instance in the cloud or through uh, through the networks and uh, what i think uh, when it comes to ends and encryption you are uh, you're having less of this uh, liability uh, uh, anymore because uh, even if uh, one of the parts of the system as a provider is hacked, uh, espionage or uh, some some uh, authorities is uh, using backdoors to, to try to monitor, it cannot happen just with a weak link in, in the chain because uh, uh, from one point to the other, uh, uh, the system is encrypted. That's one thing. The other thing, what I think is, if the Pandora's box is, is open, I mean, it's, and there are tons of open source uh, uh, software, uh, mostly thanks to Phil, we can we can have Ensign encrypted or encryption uh, open source the software. Uh, and um, and uh, if even if uh, uh, EU try to ban or limit and send encryption, the bad guys uh, can still use those uh, uh, open source software and uh, can still use to uh, do uh, uh, bad things. So that uh, basically you are limiting, um, you're limiting the ban to the ones who, who are the most vulnerable and who are most probably not uh, uh, having any bad things planning, uh, planned. Well, this is uh, kind of um, connects with uh, something that I wrote in the original PGP manual in the early '90s, that if privacy is outlawed, only outlaws will have privacy. Very true. Um, it, so I think one of the things that I, comes to my mind is that because you know I'm I'm not an encryption guru, but I understand the reasons for it. But that part of me also believes, like, okay, well. Is there a case that they've got because they 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 want to have access to criminal activity and potentially these services can harbour criminal activity or shelter criminal activity? And I see so much now going on around encryption, even with ransomware as well. Is like, oh, you know, they got encrypted, their, their files got encrypted. Um, is I mean, is there really a solution there that that both organisations where people that provide encryption services? or companies that provide encryption services and law enforcement can work together? Uh, it's very difficult to build a system that has a, a backdoor for law enforcement without weakening it mm -hmm. uh, so that criminals or foreign intelligence agencies can exploit that backdoor. Um, you know, it's it's very hard to get this right. And, you know, if you, if you weaken it intentionally, uh, you're going to regret it later. Uh, throughout the years, my, my software has been used by um, government agencies, intelligence agencies around the world. Um, it's been used by U.S. Navy SEALs. Uh, 
British special forces. Um, they none of those none of those uh, customers would have used my products if it had a backdoor. Um, so, you know, you have to you have to make it. You know, if you build it strong enough to protect the good guys, then you know criminals are going to use it too. But that's true for so many of the other technologies that we have. You know, one one of my favorite stories about this is um, approximately a hundred years ago, um, the American bank robbers Bonnie and Clyde uh, robbed banks uh, with uh, the help of a car, and they innovated the use of automobiles to escape uh, the police for robbing a bank. This was a century ago, and. What they would do is they would choose their banks to be close to the border uh, between U.S. Uh, states, and they would rob the bank, jump in the car, drive very fast, and cross the border to the neighboring state so the police couldn't chase them. The police had never seen bank robbers do this before. They didn't know what to do. Uh, they, were, um, they were, in fact, uh, even asking the car companies to build their cars with smaller fuel tanks. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Clyde Barrow wrote a letter to Henry Ford uh, congratulating him on building such a fine automobile that was so helpful to him for robbing banks. Um, so fortunately, the car companies did not put smaller fuel tanks on their cars. We have to recognize that new technologies that are useful to so many people uh, are also useful to criminals. But the rest of society um, enjoys the use of the new technology. Similarly, GPS receivers, handheld GPS receivers, are used everywhere today, and it's built into our smartphones. Um, and we benefit from it. You know, cars have GPS receivers, uh, smartphones do. But the Al-Qaeda hijackers um, purchased handheld G uh, GPS receivers so that they can navigate their airplanes uh, to their targets. Um, and... And so what are we supposed to do about that? Should we stop selling GPS receivers because terrorists might use it? I just feel you pointed out something I think very important. Navy SEAL is using PGP and other... Well, I don't know if they're using PGP, but they, they were using um, my silent phone product. Silent phone, yeah. and and why why did they use the silent phone? Why didn't they trust their own network and, and their uh, own uh, system? Why did they use end-to-end -end encryption? Well, they if, um, if uh, they, they they have their own system in the old network. days, um, guys like that would carry um, special gear uh, built by NSA, uh, you know, mili secure military communications gear, but. Um, if you want to cross uh, national borders, I mean, you could jump in and parachute in at night, <laughs> which a lot of times they do that. But sometimes they need to cross national borders wearing civilian clothes, you know. And if they if they just carry a smartphone like everyone else, um, it's it blends in. And and also when you run the app and you run it through cell phone, uh, you know, three G or four G uh, cell towers. You're blending in with the uh, electromagnetic spectrum that everyone else is using. And so it's, you know, there's there's a lot of advantages. Um, so uh, what, what I mean is, uh, why don't they just root uh, 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 through their servers, not having end-to-end encrypted? Why well, they needed to, to have it end-to-end encrypted? You could do that, but then uh, from a traffic analysis perspective, that would reveal that they, um, you know, that they that they work for the Pentagon, you know. Okay. Um, I mean, remember, they're operating in countries where the government of that country is able to observe all the packets. And, and they could see the addresses on those packets, where they're going. And if they are going to, you know, some military-controlled servers, um, then they're more likely to figure out you know who they are um so if you're using a commercial service like millions of other people then you you kind of blend in more so i mean the whole of society is benefiting from end-to-end -end encryption and you know many years ago um 
the NSA and, and their and their and and their peer agencies in other countries uh, decided that it, that there are advantages in using commercial off-the-shelf products that are sufficiently well designed and well implemented, and that it, it's suitable for military applications or uh, intelligence applications. So, from a national security point of view, if you want to protect your your country's national security. Do not require backdoors uh, in commercial products, mm -hmm. because then you're going to weaken, you know, your your Navy SEALs. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, yeah, you're going to put them I, in I'd danger. Just like talk, I'd just like to jump onto that point as well, and I think it's something you mentioned before as we were chatting, is around the the case for for Huawei and and China and five G as well. Um, potentially, that that is also a threat um, to national security with the rollout of 5G, is is that also something, Phil, that you see as, a, as an, Ill, an issue? Yeah, um, we, we're in a situation now where we see a number of phone companies throughout Europe uh, purchasing Huawei 5G uh, cell towers and other infrastructure mm. uh, equipment. And they're deploying them, you know, everywhere at, at scale. And, um, you know, historically... Um, the NSA has had worldwide reach in signals intelligence, and I've spent a good part of my career criticizing the NSA for some of their policies. Mm -hmm. um, but China has not had this kind kind of worldwide reach. Um, I mean, certainly they do a lot of signals intelligence within China and in neighboring countries, but they haven't had the worldwide reach that the NSA has had. Um, but if we deploy 5G equipment throughout Europe that is built by Huawei, a company with deep ties to the Chinese military, uh, indeed was founded by um, members of the Chinese military, uh, then this is likely to give China signals intelligence capabilities uh, comparable to the NSA, at least in the areas where they're deploying 5G infrastructure. That means the ability to do traffic analysis, um, you know, intercepting content, uh, messages, uh, possibly voice streams, and, um, and, and you know, keeping track of the movements of, of Chinese dissidents that are living and traveling in Europe. And also um, working against the interest of European countries. So if we, mm -hmm. if we you know, we need to have, for, just purely from a national security argument, to protect our national security of European countries, Western democracies, we need to have end-to-end -end encryption, ubiquitous end-to-end -end encryption, mm -hmm. so that all the government ministers and government employees and uh, you know civilian uh, defense contractors and uh, uh, just ev everywhere throughout society to protect us from Chinese uh, intelligence agencies, we're going to need end-to-end encryption if we're using networks mm -hmm that are built, designed and built uh, by, uh, by Huawei. Mm -hmm. And I think the, the, the follows on to the question is that, that if, you know, this is a debate that something that happens within the EU because um, we know that the five eyes, which is comprised of the UK, US, uh, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, they've always pushed for um, weakening encryption. But if this becomes a... a let's say, a focal point again, what's the concerns for companies like yours and obviously like Gishvans as well um, in, a, in addressing that from a, from, from a service perspective? What's the concerns that you'll have there? You mean uh, concerns yeah. about, uh, uh, I mean, we, we created the uh, ends and encrypted, this ends and encrypted service because we believe that uh, uh, no Chinese, no American authorities. I mean, it's uh, what Phil, uh, Phil mentioned that, oh, now the Chinese uh, will able to monitor and will into, able to intercept the communication uh, across Europe. And uh, uh, But that statement, leaving a previous statement or uh, including a previous statement saying that NSA has uh, an easy access already, so that uh, uh, what you're feeling, yeah. you're suggesting, uh, well, I, uh, I, as a fact. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm not, 
I'm not excusing the NSA for doing signals intelligence pervasively. I, I have uh, debated NSA officials many times over the years and have criticized, um, you know, excessive surveillance um, by NSA. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't think that they're morally equivalent to Chinese intel agencies. NSA at least is connected with a company, a, West, a country, a Western democracy, with democratically elected leaders. Uh, I mean, we just we just got through an election at the time of this recording, and I hope that uh, we have a peaceful transition of power. <laughs> um, but, you know, at least the people have some influence over what the NSA does uh, by electing the leaders that control it. Uh, China doesn't have that. Um, you know, China is, is an autocracy, and um, and they have built a surveillance infrastructure in China with like, I don't know, a billion uh, video cameras with uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning algorithms behind the cameras doing facial recognition. And it's impossible for any meaningful uh, political opposition to gain traction to get any kind of uh, start to work against the incumbent uh, autocracy. And, and that's the kind of future that you can end up with if you build a surveillance infrastructure that, you know, you might think, oh, it's okay because the government we have now is not so bad. But we're all only one election away from having, you know, a right-wing um, uh, uh, populist uh, autocracy emerge. And if that happens and they inherit a technology infrastructure, a surveillance infrastructure, that lets them monitor their um, their political opposition, they may be able to preserve their incumbency indefinitely for decades or even centuries. Um, so, you know, it, it is, as a matter of civic hygiene, it is terribly dangerous for us to build a, a surveillance infrastructure with, you know, with... Uh, with backdoors in all of our uh, encrypted communications. Not only does it make us vulnerable to attack by foreign intel agencies and organized crime, but it also undermines our ability to organize politically against a, a future domestic government that um, you know has come to power. You know, the way um, you know governments like the way Trump got in and. and um, um, you know, uh, Poland and Hungary, um, we're, we're Brazil, you know, we're seeing this happen in a lot of countries and it could happen even in Western democracies that have a good relationship between the government and its people that could change overnight. And it's even what I wanted to point out that, yes, you are absolutely right. That at least the U.S. Is, is a democracy who is monitoring European people, but European people are not. Uh, so the, uh, from European pe uh, people's perspective, uh, they are being monitored by a government to which they haven't elected, and they cannot uh, hold accountable for for these actions. And that that's uh, uh, that's one thing. So that the, coming back to the incident and question. Well, that's true, but a foreign government who spies on you uh, doesn't have quite as much power as a domestic government that spies on you. Yeah, of course. I mean, you, you could be arrested in the middle of the night by a domestic government that spies on you. A foreign government, um, you know, doesn't have quite that sort of physical threat to you. Now, and so, you, I mean, by that argument, I would say, well, that's fine. Let China spy on Europe. But, you know, when the NSA spies in Europe, uh, they're probably motivated by, um, you know, um, Islamic terrorism and, and stuff like that. Um, whereas when China does it, uh, they're probably um, trying to undermine uh, Western democracies, either for economic competition or or maybe just politically undermine them to try to get to make them behave in a more favorable way to China's interest. Um, I just think that it, it isn't really morally equivalent. Uh, I, I'm not defending what the NSA does, but, you know, I'm not a big fan of whataboutism. Um that's that's what we call it. I mean, you know, the Soviet Union was really good at whataboutism. You know, you would criticize the Soviet Union for, uh, uh, you know, uh, imprisoning political prisoners in, in Siberia in, you know, gulags. 
uh, and they, the Soviets would respond, well, what about Martin Luther King? And, and uh, you know, what about, you know, racism in America? And what about economic inequality? And what about this? And what about that? Well, you know, that, that kind of diverts attention from the, the criticism of, you know, the human rights violations in, in the old Soviet Union. Um, and so we call that whataboutism. And, and I think that, that you know, when, when we compare um, the, you know, the inappropriate levels of surveillance from the NSA and the inappropriate levels of surveillance uh, from China, um, you know, I, I, I mean, I think China is a more egregious violator of, of human rights. Uh, what about if Chinese dissidents uh, want to travel in Europe and um, and and meet their friends and maybe organize politically to try to come up with ways to mitigate the human rights situation in China? Well, if China has SIGINT capabilities in the future that is comparable to the NSA because of their deployment of 5G equipment made in China, then they might be able to track these uh, dissidents. Uh, they may even be able to put economic pressure if on European countries to extradite them back to China so they could be imprisoned. Um, you know, we've seen examples of this with the, the Uyghurs. I don't know if I pronounced that correctly. Um, but, you know, they have, they have built a, a, you know, a, 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 a giant apparatus for human rights violation against the Uyghur minority. You know, if you look at the larger political context, the geopolitical context of China, they are building a military that's designed specifically for power projection. They're building aircraft carriers. They're becoming a naval power. They have as many ships now as the U.S. Navy. Um, if you go back 30, 40 years ago, it wasn't like that. They were mostly concerned about regional defense, coastal defenses. Um, and now they're becoming uh, a superpower that you know, an economic superpower, and they're developing colonial behaviors that uh, is backed up by military force. And so if you, when you look at them that way, and then you say, okay, if, if they deploy pervasive 5G infrastructure throughout Europe, and that gives them SIGINT capabilities comparable to the NSA, that adds up to a big problem for Europe. And so to say that we should, uh, we should not allow end-to-end -end encryption, well, that's insane. That's just complete madness. We, you know, we're going to be in a, a difficult situation with these 5G deployments from China, and it's going to get far worse if we don't have end-to-end -end encryption with no backdoors. And what I would like to add is uh, uh, sometimes end-to-end uh, -end encryption is, uh, is uh, or encryption in general is, is mixed up with uh, or confused with, with uh, anonymity. And uh, systems and uh, which provides you uh, enemies like Tor networks, so that the uh, in case of encryption, uh, just purely having an end-to-end encryption, you know that uh, uh, that the two endpoints, if you're not using some other technology, so who is speaking with uh, with whom, um, uh, so that the metadata is still there. And uh, the reason why I'm saying this, because in 2016, uh, there was a guy arrested um, or started looking into one guy after the, uh, a terrorist attack that uh, uh, that guy had 200,000 SIM cards registered with, uh, on his name. 200,000. And they didn't even recognize it. Uh, uh, that's a suspicious activity. And that one SIM card was involved in, in the terrorist attack. So that... Uh, what I'm saying that anonymity, uh, when even the metadata is not connected, what can they do with with content? I mean, it's uh, uh, they uh, in in that that particular case, uh, the uh, intelligence agencies were not yeah. doing uh, uh, a good good thing, even pointing out who is who's using uh, uh, the phone and not the the contents. Uh, yeah. uh, itself. So it, it wasn't like, okay, there's a suspicious uh, uh, person who is uh, who's about to uh, commit a crime and we really need to look into the contents yeah. uh, uh what's happening. And uh, so what I'm, I'm, I'm saying that uh, in that's too intrusive if, if you are monitoring or giving a capability someone to uh, 
uh, to you know look into uh, the contents of of, of users uh, because uh, currently even the metadata is not properly used. You mean that's the what I'm. Uh, you mean the metadata is concealed? Is is what you're saying? Uh, what I'm saying that uh, the metadata is uh, uh, is actually. Um, could be used even better. So that's what I'm trying to say that yeah, in most yeah. of the cases... Well, well traffic uh, analysis is used by intel agencies quite a bit. Um, they're able to tell a lot from who's calling who. And, and you know, if somebody has thousands of SIM cards, they're probably consecutive serial numbers or they're, you know, they're, they're sold in, in batches that are, you know, that if you know that one of the cards is traced to um, a terrorist cell, then you could probably assume that the other SIM cards that were purchased together in that batch are similarly uh, tainted, you know. Um, and so traffic analysis uh, can, is, it can be a very powerful thing. Uh, there's, there's such a wide variety of techniques that can be used mm. in traffic analysis. I, you know, most of the lay public uh, is not familiar with, um, with some of the, the, the advanced methods of traffic analysis. Um, you don't need the content in a lot of cases. If you're trying to understand the uh, a, a terrorist network and who's connected to who, you can just observe the communication patterns, even with burner phones and even switching to another SIM card, but it's another SIM card from the same batch. Um, plus, there's also the fact that you know which cell towers and you know the physical location because cell towers pinpoint your location with tremendous accuracy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, um, law enforcement gets a lot out of traffic analysis, but organized crime are more interested in the content. They're trying to monitor your communication so they could steal money from you uh, or blackmail you. Um, and so, you know, if you if you get rid of end to end encryption and put back doors in, it can be. The criminals will benefit from that more than law enforcement will. Mm -hmm. Certainly um, more than intel agencies. Yeah. Because intel agencies uh, get most of what they need from traffic analysis, but criminals don't get most of what they need from traffic analysis. Criminals get what they need by examining the actual content of communication. Yeah. Um, just being conscious of moving on to our next topic, I just wanted to get your feelings around, we've been talking a lot about encryption, about the current state, but what's the future for encryption as well? Because, you know, now we're starting to see things like this quantum computing coming out and th this potentially is, is posing a threat to encryption. And as we've got Phil on this wonderful podcast, I'd like to obviously get uh, a feeling from from your your views about, about quantum computing and potentially does that pose a risk to to encryption it does yes um you know for many years i didn't really take it seriously because it's very mm -hmm. very difficult to build quantum computers of any size um the, the 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 problem here is that um all the all the public key encryption algorithms that we have currently deployed like rsa and diffie hellman finite field Diffie-Hellman, elliptic curve Diffie-Hellman, everything that we have today, TLS, SSH, PGP, you know, um, uh, Signal, WhatsApp, they're all using um, public key algorithms that if somebody were to come up with a fast way to factor, they could be broken. And that's exactly what has happened. Um, there is an algorithm that... Um, uh, called Shor's algorithm that can factor uh, large integers at incredible speed, and it the, it needs a quantum computer to run, um, <clears throat> not just the little petri dish size quantum computers we have today with just a few qubits, but large complex quantum computers with a lot of qubits. We don't have those yet, but within ten years or fifteen years we will have them probably. That's what NSA tells us. NSA is telling everyone. Warning, warning, get ready for quantum computers. And no matter how you feel about the NSA, if the NSA tells you to get ready for quantum computers, you better get ready for quantum computers. Uh, so that means that we have to replace the public key algorithms that we have today with new ones that are not related to factoring. Um, and all public key algorithms are based on math problems that are 
uh, really fast to compute in one direction, but really slow to compute in the opposite direction. For example, you can take two very, very large prime numbers and multiply them together in the blink of an eye. It is so fast. In fact, it's much faster than the blink of an eye. Um, but to uh, take the product of those two primes and to try to um, break it down into the original two primes to factor it, that takes longer than the age of the universe if if the prime numbers are like a couple thousand bits long. And, and, uh, and so that's the basis by which we build uh, public key algorithms. Uh, there's another math problem called the discrete log problem. Um, and uh, that's another one that is uh, fast in one direction and slow in the other direction. But it's related to factoring. So if you find a fast way to factor, you also find a fast way to compute discrete logs. So that's going to wipe out all of our public key algorithms. So we need to find new math problems that we can build new public key algorithms on that are not related to factoring. And that's what we've done. And now uh, at this time for the past um, few years, NIST has been running a competition to come up with some new public key algorithms to replace the old ones. And um, that's reached a pretty advanced stage now. We, we now have finalists in the candidates that one of one will be one, you know, several of them actually will be picked as successors to the public key algorithms that we've depended on for so long. And so that's something that, you know, a lot of cryptographers are interested in, including myself. And I just wanted to, I mean, it's once this uh, uh, post-quantum cryptography algorithms are standardized, I think, uh, uh, because that, that is currently, as, as a vendor, this is what I see as a problem. This, uh, these algorithms are out there on scientific papers, and there are scientific debate about it. But when it comes to, uh, you know, uh, customers, uh, uh, they they are saying okay I need to buy something which is recognized by not like some some scientists and uh, some uh, the th standardization agency because I I need a standard solution and the standard yeah. solution right now is uh, what is recommended are uh, uh, factoring based RSA elliptic curve yeah uh, the Hellman's and and so on so that, uh, currently the the problem is that. Uh, uh, the ones who are buying those uh, those yeah. uh, softwares and and uh, equipments, they are well. Normally, uh, normally we wait for new standards. That's that's how things have worked in the past. Yeah. Um, but um, there's a reason why we need to be a bit more uh, in a hurry about it, and that is because um, intel agencies uh, capture traffic. And then archive it and hold it for decades and analyze it later. And so while a lot of things that we're generating in traffic right now, maybe, maybe it will no longer be sensitive 10 years or 15 years from now, but some of it will be sensitive. And, um, you know, like the NSA has this giant data center in the Utah desert. And I don't know if you've ever seen any photos of it, but it looks a lot like a Tesla gigafactory. It's huge. You know, and it's just packed with disk drives. And so they're archiving a lot of internet traffic that's encrypted today. And their plan is to hold it for many years. And then when they get quantum computers, they're going to analyze it, break it, and, um, you know, and then figure out what that traffic is. So if you're generating traffic today that you think is going to be sensitive 10 years from now or, you know, 15 years from now, then you better start switching to post-quantum algorithms now and not wait for a new standard to emerge. It, it, it is true, but which one? Well, you know, they're down, to, they're down to the finalists now. So um, probably oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. in, in previous competitions, when they reach the stage where they have finalists, uh, the finalists are, are good, strong algorithms. I mean, the, the five finalists in the AES competition were excellent block ciphers, all of them. They picked one that was faster than the others. But they could have picked any of those five, and they would have been excellent choices. Um, uh, similarly, there was a hash algorithm competition a few years ago called the SHA-3 Secure Hash Algorithm. And and when they reached the finalist stage, they were all great hash functions, and they picked one. And, you know, so I think that the finalists that they have now are likely to be strong, um, strong candidates. Um we still need a little bit more time to to vet them. It, one of the problems that slows down this 
is that the mathematics is so much more complex than than the old classic algorithms and so there's not enough there's not enough cryptographers that know the math compared to how many cryptographers understood the previous uh NIST competitions block ciphers and hash functions were better understood than um super singular isogeny Diffie-Hellman. <laughs> I, I can't even get past the abstract in the paper. It, the math is too hard for me. So that cuts down on the number of mathematicians who can do good peer review. So that uh, I think, Paul, uh, 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 we, there is a solution. Uh, uh, the solution is uh, extremely hard to pronounce. Uh, that's well, no, we, no, uh, I, I don't uh, recommend that one. That, <laughs> that one's a little bit too new. But there are some other ones that have been around for quite a while. And and I think are you know more mature and and so um, probably it'll probably be one of those. Uh, there's some there's some that are based on um, lattice theory and uh, some based on coding theory, and um, and there there's you know they're going to pick something that's strong. That yeah. it's not very convenient how they are though because their keys tend to be much larger than the keys of the classic algorithm. So they're a little bit unwieldy to work with. Um, I'd just like to move us on a little bit uh, from from the encryption uh, side of things. I, just, I think it's fascinating stuff, and I think we can get further into it a little bit more deeper. Um, uh, but from just as a summary for this moment, what we believe is that, that yeah, encryption should remain. There should be no back doors. Um, and somehow uh, we need to lobby for that, I believe, uh, especially if uh, EU is going to put it onto the table. I, I'd like to so say moving... one more thing about yeah. the encryption debate. You know, um, when they talk about going dark because um, because some people are using end-to-end -end encryption, uh, they complain about it. But I'd like to go back to 20 years ago, the last time we went through a big debate, the, the crypto wars of the 1990s. The amount of surveillance that is going on today is is so pervasive and so powerful that you know if you were to ask them well would you prefer to go back to the 90s when um when you had the uh, export restrictions on encryption or domestic restrictions would you prefer that uh, you know I, I you know i think that um well no no even at, i'm sorry i got a little confused there uh, even after the, the export controls were lifted and, and then we had strong encryption that was becoming more and more pervasive uh, 20 years ago, um, the surveillance environment that back then was nowhere near as it was as it is now. Today, we are now in the golden age of surveillance. And so it's kind of like this high resolution 4K um, monitor that lets them see the whole picture of total information awareness. But there's a few black pixels that are still not there. And they're complaining, saying they want to fill in those last remaining pixels uh, so that they can have 100% of the picture. Well, I think that, you know, that would be terribly damaging to us to give up our last remaining black pixels. You know, they've got almost everything now. What are they complaining about? I mean, they are vastly more powerful in their surveillance capabilities today than they were 20 years ago. And so, uh, come on, you know, <laughs> you don't need to get every last pixel. You can still see the big picture. There's lots of things they can see without resorting to uh, looking at, through back doors at our uh, secure communications. And what I would add uh, to, to this thought, uh, because what... Uh, what about? I mean, if they are, these pixels are uh, can be seen uh, by someone, uh, even if it's a government agency or maybe a social network. I mean, they can use it against us. Look at what's happening in uh, with uh, with social with social media. And, oh yeah, and, and they are using it against our will. They are using it against our, our brain to uh, all that information. And the question is, you mentioned Phil that. The, uh, 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 the governmental government can switch in a split second to something uh, to bad governments, and then uh, what is a guarantee that they will not use this information to against our or brain like uh, they are using it yeah. on the social uh, social network companies? So that the yes. social network companies are already uh, exhaustively uh, using 
uh, that's information. Well, I'm glad you brought this up because that's another hot button for me. Um, Social networks um, are, are, you know, undermine our privacy terribly. But the privacy loss that we have from social networks, as bad as it is, is not as bad as the as the more direct destructive effects, because social networks actually change our behavior and cause us to um, to do th- to do things and and to think things, to embrace um, conspiracy theories and and to uh, become polarized politically, to turn against each other, to be you know to hate our neighbors. Um, you know, um, social networks have revenue models that uh, monetize uh, customer data. You know, they use it to to for advertising. They they early on embraced an advertising revenue model because, well, the original mistake that we all made was that we expected everything to be free, and and so that means we didn't want to pay for social uh, social networks. And um, the problem with that way of thinking is that you know if you're not paying for the product then you are the product. Um, so social networks have a monet- have a revenue model that monetizes customer data, and that means that they can predict your behavior by carefully looking at everything that you do and even influence your behavior. Uh, and that's what's exactly what's been happening. You know, Facebook and Cambridge Analytica had a lot of effect on the Brexit vote, uh, and it also had a lot of effect in electing Trump in the 2016 election. Um, and so, and, and it, it is inflamed passions to turn people against each other. Um, you know, these algorithms that they use for generating revenue are optimized for engagement. They want you engaged all the time. They want you looking at the screen and clicking on things all the time. Well, nothing, uh, nothing, um, amplifies engagement as much as outrage. And so they try to cultivate outrage because that cultivates engagement. And outrage is what is engulfing the United States at this time. Uh, It's going to take a long time to repair this. And I don't know if we can even successfully repair it as long as social networks are amplifying the polarization. I mean, it isn't only social networks. It's also Fox News, but... You know, social networks amplify it. And it's not that they set out to destroy the United States or destroy some other population or country. They did it um, as just their, it's a byproduct of their revenue model. You know, the engineers that implemented it just thought they were doing something harmless. They thought that, oh, let's do this and it'll make more money. They didn't think that it would lead to the horrible situation that we find ourselves in today. What we've discovered is that these horrible things are, are, they emerge from the, from the low level sort of behaviors of these revenue uh, models and, and algorithms that optimize for engagement. And so you end up, you know, at the high level, you end up with um, things that destroy our political systems. What I think in the movie is social dilemma. They are debating that uh, uh, these social networks should be and uh, should be regulated more transparent. How they are uh, doing, uh, and they're raising the question how they could solve these uh, problems. What I, I, I'm what I'm saying that uh, most of the problems uh, would not uh, emerge if if. Uh, if the contents is not accessible to these uh, companies, if they, if if uh, uh, their algorithms cannot get, yeah, if they sets, had a different revenue uh, model, uh, if they if they just charge money for their services, I know that uh, that means poor people couldn't pay for it. But you know, uh, you, the benefits to poor people have to be compared to the um, to the destructive effects on poor people. Uh, you know, we have to do something to change the revenue model. The revenue model creates conditions that that you have emergent properties from this, you know, emergent behaviors. Um, the, the, the concept of emergence, emergent behaviors, is, is something that pervades all of biology and, and sociology and economics. It's, it's one of the most important discoveries of the 20th century. 
uh, along with uh, you know Einstein's discoveries in, in quantum mechanics, uh, the concept of emergence is one of the most powerful scientific uh, discoveries uh, of the 20th century. And so, um, you know, I think that a lot of the things that we see that emerge from social networks was not designed that way. It, it, the social networks were not specifically designed to achieve that objective. It wasn't a top-down design to, you know, to topple a democracy. It was just to make money advertising. Um, and so you have these kind of low-level algorithms that, you know, has the effect that emerges from it of uh, tearing uh, a culture apart of turning people against each other. Um, and so, you know, we have to find a way to get away from that. Uh, we need social networks that are not dependent on that role, uh, on that revenue model. I've been, I've been involved um, recently uh, in the past year with um, trying to help a startup, a social network that is not using the advertising revenue model and doesn't keep track of anything that you do. You can click on anything on the social network and, it doesn't even log your clicks, doesn't have any idea what its users are clicking on, never makes any recordings of them, never keeps track of anybody's behavior, and they simply charge a subscription fee. Uh, they have a free version for getting network effect, uh, but then um, to get some extra features, you pay a little extra money. And and that's that's their revenue model. You know, Instead of monetizing customer data, they monetize customers' money. Mm-hmm. Um, it's yeah, called, the, it's um, it just, just a little plug. It's called Okuna, O-K-U-N-A. And, um, mm -hmm. it was started here in, in the Netherlands, um, by a guy who used to work for me. <laughs> and so, um, he's been developing it on a shoestring, but it seems to be, it's getting better and better. And it, of the alternate social networks out there, it seems to be the best one. Yeah, I just wanted to sort of follow on from what you've been saying um, because it's been fascinating what you've been talking about, and that actually was the second introduction to this part because the um, um, when you think about social networks, we first of all about encryption, about keeping the information safe, but on the other hand, the majority of the population's put giving its information as away as what you say is that you're a product, uh, basically, of any service that you're giving for free. Um, and right now, the other thing that's happening, or which is is under review, is the likes of Twitter and Facebook and Google being dragged in front of the Senate committee um, to talk about the spread of misinformation. Um, and that's ongoing. And I wanted to get your feelings, obviously, about that. And we're already halfway through that. Um, but it's okay when we focus on Western society and, and we're a little bit more aware. I think a lot of damage is being done, as you mentioned, in the poorer countries in the developing worlds where people are building basically um, their businesses on Facebook, they're building or their interactions are on Facebook. And I've seen it myself where information is being sent around, which doesn't potentially make any sense to me whatsoever. And yet in these developing countries, they take it more or less as gospel. Yeah, yeah, you can't tell the difference. Um, you know, I, I try to limit, my, I, I, I try to get my news from reputable news organizations that win Pulitzer Prizes. Um, I, I think that, you know, I, I mean, I subscribe to the New York Times and I subscribe to some other, I, well, to the Atlantic, which is a good uh, magazine on world affairs. I subscribe and I pay real money for these. Um, you know, I think you would make the world a better place if you would pick um, some um, reputable news or organization that you like. If you live in the UK, maybe The Guardian or something that, you know, is is a prestigious news organization and, and, uh, and subscribe to it so they can pay the salaries of their investigative journalists. You know, um, the crimes of the Trump administration... If that had happened uh, five years later or 10 years later, uh, there wouldn't have been any investigative journalist to uncover his, uh, his crimes. Because uh, five years from now or 10 years from now, uh, the, the, the economic effects of the advertising model has defunded um, you know, uh, strong newspapers. They've had to uh, lay off um, a lot of their you know, well-paid and professional and highly experienced investigative journalist. 
um, it's now just all about clickbait and, you know, you, you're not going to get that, you're not going to get the kind of hard hitting investigative journalism from, um, you know, from Buzzfeed, um, that you would get from the New York times or the Atlantic or the Washington post. Um, so the whole, this whole thing about, you know, everything ought to be free on the internet, I think is a terrible idea. We didn't realize how terrible it would be until, you know, things have emerged this, to, you know, we're in a terrible situation now because we made this pact with the devil to get everything for free. And do you both see the possibility to rectify that? I mean, are there, um, let's say, the, the, the group of vendors, technology vendors that are starting to take that social responsibility now for, as you mentioned, Phil, you, you've got a, a potentially a social media platform that's that's going to be a bit more transparent um, and uh, and being charged for, but is there the ability to, to change this and, and how long will it take? Well, it's hard for a, a startup a social network to take on Facebook, you know, um, but you have to try, you know, you can't just let things go on the way they've been going on. Um, we have to try. And we, and you know, during the 1990s, a lot of people said, why are, why are you wasting your time trying to fight the government on export controls on encryption or, or domestic controls on, on strong encryption? You're never going to win. You know, um, it's hopeless. They're very powerful. Don't waste your time trying to, trying to change things. Well, that turned out not to be the case. It was not a waste of time. We did change things. Now, it is somewhat surprising to find 20 years later, after 20 years of enjoying the benefits of that victory, that we find ourselves now with a resurgence of um, governments pushing back against strong encryption. So maybe we need to fight it all over again. I hope that it'll be easier this time. We have the advantage of um, widespread deployment and entrenchment of the, of the you know pervasive encryption. So I hope we can uh, hang on to that effectively. And this is what I uh, uh, I think as well as uh, uh, there is hope uh, and and maybe not the startup maybe uh, uh, Facebook will change maybe the big companies will change but something there is uh, uh, um, we need to we need to do this and I'm uh, treasure this up to you know changing the world with a little piece or giving a little piece uh, 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 to that. But I think what is more important that you know, raising awareness of, of uh, the people across the globe about the, the problem and uh, because the, the people uh, are out there who is being uh, influenced by, uh, by these uh, topics need to be aware of the danger, need to be aware uh, why is it bad and because without them, these, this battle cannot be won. Uh, and without without the people, I mean, if if people don't care and give up uh, caring about uh, how their brain uh, is washed, how their uh, private private uh, discussion is being being tracked, without that push, without that uh, pressure, uh, we'll not be able to uh, win this battle. So that the uh, the hope, uh, I think, uh, there is uh, uh, there is hope because this awareness is is rising. Uh, people are getting uh, um, uh, more and more sensitive to the topic of their uh, uh, what they are showing to their children, how they are uh, how their children are, are consuming uh, um, uh, contents uh, on the internet, getting more more uh, conscious about uh, you know choosing uh, a secure platform. I mean, it's uh, it's great to see that. Uh, that end-to-end encrypted chat uh, platforms uh, are widespread. Um, I, I, I'm glad to see that, and we need to push back on on the, for instance, uh, uh, regulatory um, um, tries uh, like the EU's uh, this latest uh, draft or whatever. We need to push back together that now. This is not. I mean, it's it's not saying end to end end of the end and encryption, but we need to uh, um, resist any yeah. 
any sort of uh, any sort well, of uh, we 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 wishy we have to resist this. Um, and and look, I don't do this by denying that criminals use uh, strong encryption. Of course they do, um, but you know, law enforcement is going to have to um, do what they have always done. They have lots of tools to do investigations. Uh, you know, wiretapping the content of calls is not the only way to solve crimes. It's it's actually used in a minority of cases, at least that's how it's been historically. These crimes leave footprints in the real world. Uh, you know, law enforcement conducts investigations and, uh, you know, does a lot of their um, investigative work looking at the um, at the real world footprints of that criminals leave. Um, we we have to recognize that criminals do use uh, this technology, and so this technology has mixed effects. But it benefits society more than it harms society, and we can't we can't really live without it. You know, we've got to have defenses against um, cyber attacks. We are in an unbelievably hostile environment today compared to twenty years ago, and, and mm-hmm. you know we we've got to have uh, some protection. And the and the attackers mm-hmm. enjoy a kind of asymmetric uh, advantage, and uh, we're doing very badly in our defenses. Uh, but the one thing that seems to work pretty well is encryption. So we've got to hang on to that. Yeah. And any final thoughts? Uh, this is just something that sprung to mind around the ransomware attacks that you see as well, because that's part of encryption, right? So, and that can cause a lot of people to be concerned about especially larger companies with all this 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 ransom but it's also affecting smaller businesses as well any thoughts on that well you know if you, when you look at the broader picture of cybersecurity um the attackers are winning and and ransomware is part of that you know they inject malware into our platforms um we have to um try to keep up with that we're, we're not we're not doing very well you know um, we have to keep working on uh, improving our cybersecurity defenses I'm not talking about encryption I mean encryption is not a panacea it doesn't solve everything but it does solve some things very well but we need to uh, you know keep up the effort to repel cyber attacks in general um, there's criminals and foreign intel agencies out there that are trying to get in. And sometimes there's not much difference between the criminals and the foreign intel agencies. Sometimes, you know, if they come from governments that are, you know, kleptocracies, uh, then uh, <laughs> there's not much distinction between their uh, their intel agencies and their and, and organized crime in those countries. Yeah, that's it. Ishvan, any final thoughts? Um, I'm going to start wrapping up now as we come to the end of our time, but. Um... Yeah. Any any final thoughts on 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 the encryption side? And I think is uh, uh, I think we'll uh, wrap it up. Uh, uh, pursue good. Uh, uh, are the you know that the, the benefits of encryption is much higher for the society mm. than and the drawbacks or the other way around. Uh, uh, banning and some encryption would cause more harm. Yeah, I, that benefits. reminds. I've got to tell you one more funny story. Uh, many years ago, I think it was I don't know maybe 15 or 18 years ago, I was in um, Brazil. Not sorry, not uh, not Brazil. Um, in, in Colombia. I was in uh, Bogota speaking at a conference. And um, <clears throat> and so they wanted me to meet with some member of parliament because they were con- considering new legislation that would make it legal uh, for banks to use in, uh, encryption. I know, that sounds crazy. What? They were passing a law making it legal for banks to use encryption. That sounds shocking that they were forbidding banks from using strong encryption at that time. Uh, but banks were getting robbed by cyber criminals that were just, you know, breaking in and just stealing lots of money because they weren't allowed to use encryption. You know, this is like throwing the baby out with the bathwater, you know. Uh, in Colombia, because... You know, because I probably because of the unusual history of Colombia, uh, they didn't want anybody. They just outlawed all strong encryption. Not even banks could use it. And so, um, and so, we were having a meeting uh, to, before meeting with the member of parliament to discuss this legislation. 
and um, the PR agency that was handling this, um, they the, the the girl from the PR agency was late to the meeting, and she came in and she said, "I'm so sorry, I'm late." Uh, this morning, my bank account was cleaned out by bank robbers. Um, <laughs> so what an irony that we were we were preparing to discuss with a member of parliament some new legislation to make it legal to use strong encryption to defend a bank. And, and of course, I'm sure that they passed legislation because I don't think that they would, you know, they, that problem is so intolerable that they would have had to fix it. Uh, but that was many years ago. And so that's a good example of how, you know, when people focus too much on their own job, if your job is to, like, uh, investigate crimes and wiretap criminals, then it's possible you might lose sight of the larger mission that the whole of society has to be protected, and they need encryption to do that. And just because your job is made a little bit harder because now you find that some of your wiretaps don't work because the criminals use it, it's a terrible mistake. To, tr- to try to optimize your own narrowly defined job so much that the whole of society is damaged to make your little job easier, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Um, uh, gentlemen, I'm Sorry, really I have so many stories I break in a lot yeah. with these, uh, you know, <laughs> one okay. more thing, you know? It's, <laughs> yeah, it's okay. It's, it's fascinating stuff. I, I really appreciate you coming down. I think, you know, there's a lot to take away from this about, one, about the encryption, secondly, as well, about potentially what we're seeing as, as obviously the damage of social networks that to to society and the influence that it's been having. But at least these topics are out there now, and it's being erased. I can see that the uh, the Senate is Senate committee is obviously dragging the likes of Google and Twitter over the coals about this, um, and that awareness is out there. Um, and of course, we're bringing awareness about encryption as well. So, um, and that's the whole reason for this discussion today, um, and to get our input on that as well. So, thank you very much for joining this morning. I really appreciate the time that you've given and. Uh, I hopefully will look forward to speaking to you again in the future, Phil. It's my pleasure. It was my pleasure. Thank you. And that is all for today's episode of Under Control. You can find links to all our social platforms and to our guests in the episode description. If you like the show, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. Join me again in two weeks' time for the next episode. 